Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. How you doing, everybody? You can see me and hear me. I'm Leslie Marshall. Happy Friday. TGIF, another day sheltering in place, broadcasting from Casa Marshall uh, and uh, missing uh, going to work, to be honest, on radio and TV. But really glad that you're with us and that you can join us on this Friday. We've got a lot to talk about. We've got a great guest joining us. Stick around for that. And uh, right now we're going to do an extended version of a little thing we kick the show off with, a little thing we like to call Ripped from the headlines. First up, listen to the president speculating that injections of disinfectant like Lysol um, or bleach or UV light under the skin could kill coronavirus and asks his, quote, medical doctors to look into it. Take a listen. So supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that, too. Sounds interesting. Right. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs, so it'd be interesting to check that, so that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds, it sounds interesting to me. What? <laughs> Listen, uh, don't inject anything, anything into your body. Even bleach on the outside of the body, if you bathe in bleach, can cause uh, neurological problems. I actually know this from personal experience. No joke, not with COVID-19. Long story for another show. Uh, Joe Biden, who will be the Democratic nominee and the former vice president, said, don't inject bleach. I can't believe I have to say this. A leader needs to lead. By example, a leader needs to be somebody we can trust. You know, this this we are living an episode of the story. The emperor has no clothes. The press aren't calling him out. I think somebody put today on social media, the first person that says, you know, you're lying or that's ridiculous, uh, deserves a Pulitzer Prize. Um, And, 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 you know, other countries are going ahead with things, uh, you know, with technology and other things with regard to COVID-19. And they're not even including the United States anymore. That's dangerous, not for just our country, but for we who inhabit uh, this country. Um, Let's rip another. Now, the president, of course, today is not just backpedaling, but completely lying, BSing the world uh, with, with his justification for such insane comments 
that nobody should make, especially not somebody without an MD after their name. And even then, there are people that could die as a result of such irresponsible, uh, ridiculous comments. For some of us, they're laughable, but for some people who are terrified, who might have somebody with COVID-19 in their home, on their, or say saw somebody die with COVID-19, they might try this. Do not, do not, I repeat, do not try this at home. Now, the president said he was being sarcastic during that White House task force briefing when he said that disinfectants may be used to treat coronavirus. You just heard the audio. I did not detect any sarcasm. Uh, and and these comments have prompted Reckitt Benkiser, the maker of disinfectants Lysol and Detol, to issue a statement noting that under no, and I quote, okay, this is the guy who owns these companies, okay, who, who, is responsible for the ingredients and what they're used for. Said, quote, under no circumstance should our disinfectant products be administered into the human body through injection, ingestion, or ingestion, excuse me, or any other route. Doctors also took to social media today to quickly warn people against ingesting or using disinfectants as a treatment. This was reported by many media outlets, including the Washington Post. Craig Spencer, who is the director of global health and emergency medicine at New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center, told the Washington Post, quote, my concern is that people will die. People will think this is a good idea. End quote. I agree with Dr. Spencer. I agree with the experts. I agree with the science, the scientists, the medicine and the medical professionals. Please, folks. The president is a reality show star who was elected into the White House. I still don't know how. He is the president. He is a political leader and a figurehead of a conservative movement within the Republican Party. He is not a medical doctor. He is not a scientist. He is, he is not even privy to everything that's going on out there worldwide with regard to this virus. Uh, let's rip, on. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, before we rip another, let's listen to two people out there, somebody in the media who's a professional who I know and like and work with uh, at Fox and another who is a medical professional. First up, listen to this audio. This is Fox News' Brett Baer, whose show special report I can be seen on a couple of times a month and whose podcast I do every month as well. I just did it on Monday. Take a listen. Uh, it didn't seem like it was coming off as sarcastic when he was talking and turning to Dr. Burks on the side. Um, obviously, this spurred all kinds of coverage. It spurred a statement by Lysol not to inject its products. It spurred the FDA to put out uh, something as well. And also in disagreement with the president, because the president and the vice president seemed to say one thing to Georgia Governor Kemp, uh, you know, like, yeah, go ahead, buddy, you know, high five. And then publicly they, you know, backpedal, um, you know, but it all comes down to testing and testing capabilities. The more testing we have, the quicker we can try to resume to somewhat normal life and then hopefully normal life once again. Uh, but here's Dr. Anthony Fauci, who I do trust, uh, who's not very confident with things that the president seems to be confident with regard to testing. Take a listen. We absolutely need to significantly ramp up not only the number of tests, but the capacity to actually perform them so that you don't have a situation where you have a test, but it can't be done because there's not a swab or not an extraction media or not the right vial. All of those things got to be in place. I am not overly confident right now at all that we have what it takes to do that. We're getting better and better at it as the weeks go by, but we are not in a situation where we say we're exactly where we wanna be with regard to testing. I think anybody that has any realistic evaluation of what's going on in the trenches will tell you 
Again, we're doing better, and I think we're going to get there, but we're not there yet. No, we aren't. Uh, no, we are not there yet. And I, I would say not just because I live in California, I'm a Democrat, it's a blue state. But if you look to New York and California, uh, we in California, our numbers are low considering our population, quite frankly, uh, even in big cities like Los Angeles uh, compared to New York. We don't have the density. Obviously, we're, we're much more spread out. We also live our lives in our cars and we jumped down the shelter in place, uh, you know, before pretty much anybody else in the country. Uh, we were first or second in line for that. Um, so listen to the medical professionals. And I would agree. Remember, if you are to being, if there's testing, there's antibody testing, and then there's viral testing. If we know who has it, who's had it, and who doesn't have it, we can make a better determination as to how we go forth uh, to lifting uh, these shelter-in-place restrictions, city by city, state by state within our nation. I'm Leslie Marshall. We're going to come back with more Rip from the Headlines right after this. Don't go away. Quick break. We'll be right back after this. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Leslie Marshall, happy Friday, thank God, Friday. Although every day kind of feels the same to me lately. Uh, I'm still doing uh, radio. You can uh, catch it here uh, on uh, Periscope and uh, listening all the places we carry the show, Tuesday and Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern. You can catch me on TV. Uh, sign up for my free newsletter. Uh, go to our website, lesliemarshallshow.com for that. Next on TV on Monday, I think, 1 p.m. Eastern on uh, Outnumbered Overtime with Harris Faulkner. And uh, also you can read every week my article for foxnews.com. It'll be coming out tonight or tomorrow. And I'm going to talk about those protesters and what I think about them facing off with healthcare professionals being the wife of a healthcare professional. Uh, check all that out and we'll uh, keep you abreast of what's going on. If you're watching me on Periscope, you already follow me on Twitter. Tell your friends at Leslie Marshall to follow me there. But now let's uh, get back to ripped from the headlines. Uh, next up, the news about U.S. job losses has been grim. Around 26.5 million workers have fired for unemployment benefits in the past five weeks. But the number of Americans who've lost their jobs is likely far higher than that. Here's what is in the state of play. The true number of people currently unemployed in the U.S., likely between 32 million and 70 million, putting the unemployment rate somewhere between 20 and 45 percent. And uh, driving the news on this, the latest U.S. initial jobless claims report showed more than 4.4 million laid-off workers applied for unemployment benefits last week, uh, raising the total to about one in six American workers. Uh, continuing unemployment claims are the total number of Americans receiving jobless benefits rose by 4.1 million. That's an all-time high now of 16 million for the week that ended April 11th. And looking at the numbers over the last decade, continuing claims have represented on average about 27.5% of the number of the unemployed. The DRW trading rate strategist Lou Bryan told Axios, that would suggest there are more than 60 million people currently unemployed, putting the unemployment rate above 30 percent. And that's a conservative estimate, given that continuing claims have increased by about 4 million in each of the last three weeks. The number of people unemployed today could very realistically be as high as 70 million. And even if the continuing claims, yeah, even if the continuing claims percentage jumps to 50 percent of unemployed, meaning nearly twice as many unemployed people as average qualify for and are receiving benefits, 
it would mean that upwards of 32 million people are now unemployed. The rate has only risen to that level, 50% once, and that was back in 1975. So be smart. Um, both initial jobless claims and continuing claims are imperfect measures of the number of people who have lost their jobs, as many are not eligible for unemployment benefits. Some don't even apply. To remedy this, the government tracks unemployment through two separate means, employer, employer filings and a regular survey of households. Every measure misses large numbers of people, keep in mind. So the true unemployment rate at a given time is often not known until one, two or more years later. After the fact, let's rip another. Rick Bright said two days ago, he believes he was removed from his role as director of the U.S. Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority this week after clashing with health and human services leadership over his attempts to limit the use of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine to treat the coronavirus. The New York Times reported this first. Now, why does this matter? The president and his allies in conservative media have repeatedly touted hydroxychloroquine, uh, an anti-malarial drug, as a potential game changer for treating the coronavirus. Now, health experts have taken an even more cautious approach, noting the drug has shown anecdotal promise, but that its efficacy has not yet been proven. Asked about Bright at the White House coronavirus briefing just two days ago on Wednesday, the president responded, quote, I never heard of him. Yes, that's what he said. So what to watch? Bright, who is a career official and not a political appointee, said he will request that the inspector general of HHS open an investigation into the politicizing of his agency. And what he is saying, here's his statement, quote, I believe this transfer was in response to my insistence that the government invest the billions of dollars allocated by Congress to address the COVID-19 pandemic into safe and scientifically vetted solutions and not in drugs, vaccines, and other technologies that lack, lack scientific merit. I am speaking out because to combat this deadly virus, science, not politics or cronyism, has to lead the way. I have spent my entire career in vaccine development in the government with CDC and BARDA and also in the biotechnology industry. My professional background has prepared me for a moment like this to confront and defeat a deadly virus that threatens Americans and police and people, excuse me, around the globe. To this point, I have led the government's efforts to invest in the best science available to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. Unfortunately, this resulted in clashes with HHS political leadership, including criticism for my proactive efforts to invest early into vaccines and supplies critical to saving American lives. I also resisted efforts to fund potentially dangerous drugs promoted by those with political connections. Specifically, and contrary to misguided directives, I limited the broad use of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine promoted by the administration as a panacea, but which clearly lacks scientific merit. Uh, while I'm prepared to look at all other options and to think outside the box for effective treatments, I rightly resisted efforts to provide an unproven drug on demand to the American public. I insisted that these drugs be provided only to hospitalized patients with confirmed COVID-19 while under the supervision of a physician. These drugs have potentially serious risks associated with them, including increased mortality observed in some recent studies in patients with COVID-19. Sidelining me in the middle of this pandemic and placing politics and cronyism ahead of science puts lives at risk and stunts national efforts to safely and effectively address this urgent public health crisis. I will request that the Inspector General of the Department of Health and Human Services investigate the manner in which this administration has politicized the work of BARDA and has pressured me and other conscientious scientists to fund companies with political connections and efforts that lack scientific method. Rushing blindly towards unproven drugs can be disastrous and result in countless more deaths. Science and service to the health and safety of the American people must always trump politics. That's exactly what he put. These studies...
They are finding that there is um, risks to the heart, cardiac issues with the early scientific testing of these drugs on COVID and non-COVID-19 patients. That's a sidebar. Let's rip another. Governor Andrew Cuomo, the Democratic governor in New York, accused Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, of hypocrisy over his refusal to provide coronavirus aid to hard-hit states by pointing out that Kentucky takes billions in federal help each year. New York, they send more tax money to Washington than they get back. In other words, Governor Cuomo's helping uh, Mitch McConnell, state of Kentucky. McConnell responded to bipartisan calls for Congress to provide coronavirus relief to state and local governments by rejecting what he called blue state bailouts. Even though he had no problem approving bailouts for massive corporations like airlines. And last time I checked, Kentucky's pretty red. And if they need a bailout, I'm sure because McConnell wants to be reelected, he would approve of that. He, uh, quote, I would certainly be in favor of allowing states to use the bankruptcy route. That's what he told conservative radio host Hugh Hewitt. It saves some cities, he said. There's no good reason for it not to be available. My guess is the first choice would be for the federal government to borrow money from future generations to send it down to them now so they don't have to do that. That's not something I'm going to be in favor of. You know what bankruptcy does to a person, to their credit, to their state of mind? What do you think it does to the economy and to a business and to their credit and their state of mind? Absolutely crazy. Uh, Cuomo, who is a Democrat, as you know, chastised the Republican leader during his briefing yesterday. He said, quote, this is really one of the dumb ideas of all time. I love the shoot from the hip, raw honesty of Cuomo. I really do. OK, uh, this is really one of the dumb ideas of all time. You will see a collapse of this national economy. So just dumb, vicious. It is. Uh, I'm not a, you don't need to be an economic scholar from Harvard uh, to know this is stupid. Economically, it is disastrous. He said, how ugly a thought. I mean, just think of what he's saying. People died. 15,000 people died in New York, but they were predominantly Democrats. So why should we help them? For crying out loud, if there was ever a time for you to put aside your pettiness and partisanship, Cuomo also highlighted McConnell's hypocrisy by pointing out that Kentucky is far more dependent on federal funding for its state than New York or where I am in California, another blue state. He said his state, the state of Kentucky, takes out $138 billion more than they put in. New York puts in more money to the federal pot than it takes out. Senator McConnell, who's getting bailed out here? Your state is getting bailed out, not my state. Love it. Well, that's what's ripped from the headlines. Coming up, very special guest. Stick around. Uh, we have the president of the American Federation of Teachers right after this. Don't go away. They, students, parents, all being affected largely by COVID-19 in this crisis. Stick around. I'm ready. Thank you. And we're back. Hey there, folks. I'm Periscope. I'm Leslie Marshall and everybody listening to the program. I'm really stoked to have this woman on the program. Uh, I am a big fan of her, what she does. Uh, I'm a parent. I have two children in school and, um, you know, not just a working woman, but a working woman who faces huge obstacles. And I have just the utmost admiration and respect for her. She's been on the show before. More than a pleasure to have her back during this crisis. We're talking today with Randy Weingarten. Randy is president of the 1.7 million member American Federation of Teachers the AFL-CIO, which represents teachers, paraprofessionals, and school-related personnel, higher education faculty and staff, nurses, and other healthcare professionals, local, state,
state and federal government employees and early childhood educators. Now, the AFT champions fairness, democracy, economic opportunity, and high-quality public education, healthcare, and public services for students and their families and their communities. The AFT and its members advance these principles through community engagement, organizing, collective bargaining, and political activism, and especially through their members' work. Uh, more than a pleasure to have Randy back on the program. It's a trying and challenging time for teachers, for children, uh, for their parents. Uh, thank you for being with us, Randy, and taking the time today. I'm glad to have you back on the show. Good afternoon. Thank you, Leslie, and thank you. Um, look, it's like it is an unbelievable moment in America. And I first, you know, I sit in New York City, and this week at least, you don't hear a siren every, literally every two minutes. This week, you're seeing, you know, everybody's walking around with masks and physically distancing. And frankly, New Yorkers don't normally pay attention to rules, but they're paying attention to these rules. But, you know, we have a pandemic made worse in America by the fact that Trump didn't prepare the country. And um, as a result, even though the administration knew what was going on in January, and we held our first press conference about this February 2nd, the, our Americans weren't prepared. And as a result, a lot of what's going on right now has been made worse. And so what part of what we have to do is we have to take care of the well-being of everyone, the communities in which we live, their health, their safety, their well-being. And that's part of why schools were closed and why we've tried to do remote learning. Second, we have to make sure that the people who really are on the front lines, the nurses, the doctors, the grocery store workers, the food service workers who are doing the grab and goes, the transit workers, they have to have the protective equipment and gear they need so because they are risking their lives every day that they are protecting ours. And third, we have to make sure that just like FDR did in the Great Recession, in the New Deal, we have to make sure we protect people real people, not just corporations, from the long-term and short-term economic impacts of what's going on right now. And that's why when McConnell said that the state should go bankrupt, that was the most craven, callous, criminal thing he could do because these are the states, it should have been the federal government doing a lot more, like you know, in so many ways, but the states are where the rubber hits the road in making sure that people are safe. And, and they're spending a whole bunch of money at the same time as because the economy has been paused, their tax revenues are cratering. If this is the moment that the federal government should be giving them money so That's we so. can backfill the revenues so that we can actually do the reopening plans that we need to do in a safe way. So I'm sorry, I'm so angry about this, but from the beginning when Trump didn't tell anybody what was going on to the stupidity about the Lysol comment yesterday to now not getting the money that all these states, both run by Democrats and Republicans need, this, I would give this federal response a double F, F to Trump and F to McConnell. 
And not just in the grade. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I had to jump on that. And I don't, I don't hear anger. I mean, I know you're angry. I hear passion. And, and, and that's what we need in a leader of an organization like the AFT, because you're, you're passionate about our kids' lives, my kids' lives. I, I have a 12 and 13-year-old who are being uh, schooled by teachers that are also, this is new to everybody. It's new to the teachers, yeah. the parents, and the kids. And, you know, we were talking about this last night, Randy, at the dinner table. My, my husband and I, we were doing like a, a Zoom dinner party, and um, we were talking with some friends who have kids also about people forget that there are families out there and there are children out there that don't have books, don't have homes or living in shelters, uh, maybe borrowing uh, some type of computer equipment or a, a, a lot of different kids. Like, you know, somebody's using it, wiping it down, dropping it off another apartment further down the yeah. hall. You know, people forget the disadvantage a lot of these uh, children are at. And I, I was, um, I, I was psyched that you'd be on today because we were talking about this last night. But can you can you talk to us yeah. about the lack of books uh, that children yeah. have? Because I know in New York, where you are, uh, the public schools began remote learning there in in March. Um, you you went you wondered um, how uh, this was being addressed in the digital divide, right? I mean, because when you talk about kids in shelters, and there are children in shelters, not just in New York City, all major cities in the country. Um, they don't have Wi-Fi access. They've got to do something right. else. They've got to have a book, right? Right, and rural areas too. I mean, so, you know, what, what's happening in this pandemic, um, and yeah, we are doing Zoom dinner part. We're doing Zoom dinners with our friends and family like once a week where we're really connecting. And it's great that Zoom has basically um, given a lot of us, most of us, their technology for 45 minutes for free. And yep. I want to just you know, give them a, 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 you know, a high five for that. But they, but we're, there's a, the, this pandemic has exposed the, all of the inequities in America. And one of them is that there's a lot of people who don't have connectivity at home or who are in congregate living spaces like homeless, nursing homes, other places, and, and so there are all these health and safety issues as well as lack of access. And so, you know, there's, there's over 2 million homeless kids in America. And if you think about why they're homeless, domestic violence, all sorts of other things. And what we have done as teachers, not just in New York, but all over, is that we're trying to do everything we can to like build a plane and fly it um, for kids in all sorts of different circumstances. And, and we have to focus on the most vulnerable as well, which is why we have given out over 5 million books through First Book to kids who are poor, kids you know, creating classroom libraries for Title I kids, and which is half the kids in America. But in this moment, we created a new program called AFT Books for Keeps, and, and, and we're working with some homeless shelters, one of which was in New York, the biggest one in New York wins, where we and the WIND staff figured out um, the kind of book titles that would be appropriate for kids from basically kindergarten to high school that would also 
have trauma-informed practices in them or a way of kind of thinking about hope instead of being scary. Right. So, so we spent a lot of time figuring out the titles. And last week, we delivered 10,000 books so that kids could pick at least two books out each. They did that this week. Um, and the, and what, the, um, what the head of the shelter told me the day the books were there was that this gave, she saw such joy on the kids and their parents' faces because kids now have these to keep for themselves. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with AFT President Randy Weingarten. And uh, don't forget that since COVID-19 began, thousands of educators have submitted requests to firstbook.org for funding to choose and purchase books for their students to support distance learning. A donation to firstbook.org would help get books into the hands of kids with need across the country. And you just heard Randy say, we, we, we have more than a million children in shelters right now, folks. Uh, we have posted the link on our video stream. We'll do the same on all of our social media accounts. I'm asking you please to go to firstbook.org and donate whatever your budget allows. And a shout out to the publishers who've given so many books uh, to these children. We'll be back with Randy. We'll be back with you right after this. I'm Leslie Marshall. Don't go away. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall. And we'll be sure to share your tweets. back with Randy Weidenbarton. She is president of the 1.7 million member American Federation of Teachers. I also want to share with you the website because you can find out more information there about what we're talking about today. Go to AFT.org and on Twitter, follow at AFTUnion and also follow President Weingarten at R. Weingarten. That's R-W-E-I-N-G-A-R. T-E-N. Back with Randy. Back with you. Uh, Randy, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Um, we were talking about books uh, for children because a lot of these kids that and I was uh, impressed that uh, you guys and first book were not just going to shelters, but were also distributing uh, books to children that were standing in line that were trying to get uh, food because a lot of people out there, yeah. you know, need food and don't have the money for that. So I, th- I thought that was a really smart choice and and, and spot on. Um, and uh, for people just tuning in right now, we're talking about First Book, who are assisting some of the most impacted members of our society, our children, uh, during this coronavirus uh, pandemic. Um, and the uh, the First Book, there are three other agencies offering support to those uh, affected uh, by the outbreak. And once again, Randy, you know, people don't understand not everybody has a computer or not everybody has access to Wi-Fi. And that's right. very true in a lot of these shelters, correct? Right. I mean, I think what's, uh, again, you know, as as we've seen, the pandemic doesn't stop at state borders. It doesn't basically say, oh, you know, you're rich, you're poor, you're Republican, you're Democrat. The virus spreads as the virus spreads but it has had a disproportionate impact on families that are poor or families that are transient or families that, you know, that are not as, um, you know, that, that don't have the things that middle-class or wealthy families have. And so part of what we've done as a public school system 
all across the country, public schools all across the country, is to focus on how to, you know, how to help make sure that kids are fed and families are fed. So these grab and goes that are happening all across the country are really important because we used to feed 30 million kids a day in terms of lunch. Now we have to feed them and families and thinking about what to do about that of the summer. The same is true in terms of learning for kids with special needs or learning for kids who are in shelters or kids who are not you know, in small apartments or kids who are in places where there's five people using the same computer or smartphone. So teachers are trying to deal with all of this. And this is part of where First Book comes in as a not-for-profit we've been working with because we can still use the mail or UPS or FedEx to kind of get books to kids and their families to create some reading, which is not only fundamental and wonderful and in normal times, but in times when you are really isolated, it's, it's, it becomes a really important friend and, and, and it can actually help create reduced stress it can actually help parents create a routine. It can actually, you know, because you can have, you know, silent reading for an hour. And if you're a parent who's trying to balance, you know, so it's not just kids in shelters. If you're a parent who's trying to balance all the, your own kind of remote work, as well as childcare and all sorts of other things, sustained silent reading for an hour is not a bad kind of routine to create. So, you know, we as teachers are trying to help parents, you know, learn our tricks of the trade, you know, in this period of time as well. Now, I, it, look, you guys are doing an incredible job nourishing the body with the food, but you got to nourish the mind. There's something I didn't even know they had a name for it. I just know it as a parent, what I think of it as summer slide. Right. And, you know, if a couple of things I've noticed as a parent that there with, with schools, consistency is key in learning. Repetition is key. And you, you don't have that. And, you know, some of the kids are not as comfortable with the Zoom uh, learning. Uh, some of the teachers aren't as well. And certainly we, the parents, aren't teachers. I definitely will admit that. I am not a teacher. <laughs> I'm not as good at this. It Thank is, God it, is, it is an art and it is a skill. And people are starting to re realize that it's that it is both of those things. So thank you, Leslie. <laughs> no, no, a absolutely. No question. And, and I think I, I know with my kids, the reading is essential because uh, one, it allows escapism and you don't want them, if they have a computer online all the time, looking at YouTube videos, you don't want them watching Netflix or TV all the time. And it's an opportunity for me to also spend some time with them too, because I can read with them. But again, if it is reading time in the morning when I'm right now, when I'm broadcasting, my kids aren't running in here because they're reading, <laughs> they're occupied, but they're, exactly. they're, they're feeding their mind as well. And, and I wanted to speak to that summer slide and wanted you to talk to that because this this helps them because it's kind of hard when they're not in the classroom setting uh, for them not to be uh, distracted to that Netflix or playing outside world around them. So one of the things that, um, you know, I, I try to reassure parents during this moment in time. You know, we had a we, we do these Tuesday night conference calls where we're calling them Tuesday night with the AFT. And uh, one a couple of weeks ago we did with the national um, PTA, we had over 55,000 people on it. And we had a couple of psychotherapists who gave a lot of advice to parents and to teachers, because we have to actually 
actually reduce the stress. You know, I know it's, it sounds crazy to say, but we have to do whatever we can to reduce the stress because yeah. a stress mind is not a mind that's going to learn. And we have to try to keep kids and parents kind of calm and, and as anxiety-free as possible. And so part of that is just basically saying, look, it is what it is. We're going to have to make up a bunch of time next year. We're praying for a vaccine as quickly as possible. We're thinking about how to reopen safely. But summer, but one of the things that we have encouraged teachers to do and, and, and hope um, administrators let them do is have capstone projects for the end of the year so that we can sum up right now in a term paper that you and I may have used to do. We sum up the fundamentals that kids have learned this year and take some time to do that and then try to use the summer to the extent we can to see what can be opened up safely, what can be done in terms of summer school in a voluntary basis, and then also really focus on what we can do starting in the fall to reopen safely. It's going to mean people yeah. may have to wear masks. It's going right. to mean people may have to be physically distant. It's going to mean we're going to have to hand wash every hour on the hour and stagger times so that we reduce, you know, we, we reduce the number of kids in school. But this is where we're focused on and that we use next year and the year after to make up for what has happened in this moment of, of great pandemic. Two uh, questions before we end the show. You said, quote, if it, 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 uh, you said, I don't want to quote the cabin fever one. Um, you said the crisis is just exasperated and exposed every inequality in the country. Can you briefly yeah. speak to that? Because I think it's a very powerful statement. Well, what's happened is that if you like, you know, I'm very lucky. I happen to live with my partner in a apartment in New York City up in northern Manhattan, the last middle-class neighborhood of Manhattan. But we happen to have three, um, two bedrooms and an office. So we can both work in different places um, and do the work we need to do and, and not be overhear each other's conversations and not interrupt each other's conversations. That's a simple example. What happens if you have five kids at home one computer, and it's a one or two room apartment. That's going to create all sorts of different stress anyway. What happens if um, you don't, you, your, your partner or everyone in the home has now been unemployed? How are you going to feed your kids? How are you going to make sure that the rent is paid? So when I say every inequality, it's not simply the kids that don't have internet. It's not simply kids that are, have special needs. It's every single inequality that happens, including that the disproportionate number of people who have actually been sick and died right. Right. are people who are black and brown. And, and that's what we have to actually recognize that. Randy, I apologize. I said two questions. I didn't mean to lie. I, was, uh, I had less time than I thought, but I hope you will come back 
And uh, hopefully I get to see you in person in New York and D.C. sometime. We you would and your love partner that. be safe. Yes, I would thank too. You, good you good too. to have you with us. Uh, thank you for being with us. You just heard from AFT President Randy Weingarten. And we're going to put all of that stuff online, like I said, so that you can donate to help get more of these children of the books that they need to learn 